came to see Mary. She was doing laundry, and then the angel just appeared, and she was really scared. So Gabriel was like, Mary, you're going to have, what? I can't, I can't say good. Mary, you're going to have a baby. I, you're going to have a baby, and you will call him Jesus. And then Mary was like, I'm not going to have a baby yet. I'm only a teenager. I'm not married. Then the angel Gabriel told Joseph that Mary is not lying. She, you are having a new baby. And so they met up. They went to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. A camel. Oh, yeah, a camel. She said, this donkey's fast. They tried to go to a hotel, and they asked the keeper um, for a place to stay. The keeper said, we have no rooms, literally no rooms. <laughs> so Mary and Joseph walked away sadly, but then he said, the only place in here in Bethlehem that, that you can stay, stay is a staple, and then he just pointed the way and they followed. When the shepherds were taking care of the sheep, then they saw angels. The angels said, a new baby is getting born who is king of the Jews. The angel were singing. And then the shepherd said, I think we should go there and meet him. The second, I think, said, yeah, I agree with you. And the other said, yeah, me too. They had to walk through a bunch of grass and bushes, maybe have to camp out a night. And then the wise men heard about it. And then a star appeared. We should probably follow that star. It's pointing down to the barn. So maybe we should follow it. Maybe. So the wise men went to Jesus. They gave them gifts. A stuffed animal, like a hippo one, that I have at home. Some diapers, and some wipes, and some milk, <laughs> some shoes, some Jordans. Gold, ring, and Latimer. And I don't know how I would survive in that barn. Too stinky, too crowded, and ugh. I think he probably pooped because the room was very smelly. Thank you for coming. He's adorable. He's gonna be our best friend. I love you, and you're the best baby I ever seen. There, I said it. <laughs> the new baby is gonna change the world. Good morning. It is good to see you all. I can't really see you. It's dark in here now. But I'm assuming you're still there, and it's good to see you. Um, if you are one of our guests this morning, we're glad that you're with us. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. I have a few um, announcements to pass your way. And... Um, most of this stuff you can find on Church Center. So if you have already downloaded that app, um, you'll be able to find these things in the event section. But tonight is Chili Sunday, so uh, be sure and come and join us up here at the church at 5 o'clock. Um, and we're going to hang out and enjoy one another's company and eat a bunch of good chili and dessert. See? <laughs> um, 
Next weekend, this is kind of a special announcement. We sent out an email uh, a couple of days ago yesterday. By a couple of days ago, I mean yesterday. Um, we're going to have, we've been praying for a children's pastor. And we have a candidate that is coming to be with us next week. Um, and there is an opportunity for our parents um, to be a part of a lunch with him uh, to ask questions. And he's going to talk to us about uh, some parenting, practical ways to, uh, to disciple our children. Um, you can be a part of that. You need to sign up for that so we can have enough food and you can find that information. Um, the sign up form also on Church Center. Um, and please, uh, we would love for you to continue praying, praying for um, the process to find a children's pastor, praying for our leadership and the decisions that need to be made, um, and praying for uh, this guy, his name is Adam, that we're, we're going to be interviewing this next weekend. Um, Next is, you know about the giving tree. Um, we still have about 15 names on the giving tree um, that we need to, uh, to have picked up by you guys. So please, before you leave today, stop by the giving tree and take a look there and pick up a tag. Um, I think you know the instructions uh, to go in, uh, and, and buy the things that are on um, that list of wants and needs and then bring those back up here to the church. Um, and then uh, our cookie ministry, our, our, we have some ladies in the church who do a cookie ministry. And um, as you might can imagine, cookies are a uh, high commodity, high, highly desirable commodity in December. So if you are into baking or want to buy some to provide for them, you can do that. Leave those in the kitchen marked for cookie ministry, and they will get them taken care of. The last thing. If you don't have plans for Christmas Eve, which you don't, you're going to be up here with us at 5. So make plans um, to be a part of that. You guys stand up with us. Let's pray together, and we're going to, uh, to worship. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for our time together, for your love for us, for this season that we get to, to celebrate um, the coming of our Messiah. Father, we ask that you would be with us today. Um, draw us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we thank you for coming. We thank you for sending one to us to give us hope, to bring peace, to bring life. We ask this morning that you would teach us, draw us close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're one of our kiddos, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. If you're one of our guests and have a kiddo in that age range, please feel free to go with them, get them checked in, and then come back and join us. Advent means that something wonderful is about to happen. And whether we're thinking of the first Advent, it was true then, or the second Advent now as we await the imminent return of Christ, Advent means that something wonderful is about to happen. And the Christmas season just heightens that wonderful feeling for most people. When I was a kid, now I could not get past the idea of thinking of the gifts. That was the big excitement for me. I lived in anticipation of that. Our family did not spend a lot of money, didn't just lavish gift after gift, but all the gifts were very meaningful and personal, and Christmas was always very exciting to me. And one of the things that my parents did, maybe you've done this too, is they would hold that one big, big gift to the very end. And so all four of his children would, would open that gift in succession. And I remember one of the most exciting gifts I got was a new watch, a new watch. And uh, I, you guys may not know what that is anymore, but um, it goes around the wrist. And anyway, uh, that was pretty important bling for a little grade school kid. And uh, I just thought it was the greatest thing. I lived in excitement of this wonderful time of Christmas and uh, just enjoying it with our immediate family. However, I did not really understand why we called it Advent season if Jesus had already come. Why are we still talking about his coming at Christmas? Because that's his second coming, right? Well, I didn't realize that at Christmas we can celebrate his first advent, his first coming. The fact that he came and gave his life to die on the cross for our sins, that all who simply believe that Jesus, as the Son of God, died on the cross for their sins in their place and ask him to enter his life, their sins are forgiven and receive the free gift of eternal life. And, and so I did that as a child. But I didn't realize that that was the real meaning of Christmas as a, as a child with all those gifts in my mind. We could celebrate because of the first Advent and still look forward to the second Advent, the coming of Christ. I like the way one writer put it. He said, we are between the hallelujah of Christ's resurrection and the Maranatha of Christ's return. We live in this in-between stage, and it's still a time of anticipation. In fact, I think anticipation, whether it's Advent or Christmas or just normal life, is one of the greatest things that we can enjoy as followers of Jesus Christ. Because our lives are hope-filled. 
when we focus on Christ, when we recognize all that he has done for us, all that he's doing in us, and all that he has planned for us, we can live with anticipation and great hope of what is to come. This morning, I want us to think about anticipating God's goodness in this Advent season as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. We are in a similar situation to that time when they were waiting Christ at the first advent, a time of darkness, a time of hope, a time of waiting on him, marginalized in exile in our culture, and waiting for that day when Christ returns to bring healing, to bring shalom, to bring health to everything to make all things new. So I repeat myself, Advent means something wonderful is about to happen. And Christmas heightens that season. We live in anticipation of gifts and friends and family. We live in anticipation daily of the return of Christ. And today I want us to think about living in anticipation of God's goodness. Paul is gonna hand out three commands for us, simple easy to understand. We know all of them. In fact, if you were to write down what are three disciplines for uh, the Christian life, what are three attitudes to carry with us on a daily basis, I think you would come up with these three right away. Our theme today is what happens when the gospel takes root. Well, practically speaking, when the gospel takes root, we anticipate God's goodness. And that's what we see here through each of these commands when they are obeyed. The first one is this, be joyful. Express the joy of the Lord in your life. Find your joy if it's not there. Let's look at God's word. The Lord calls us to a life of joy. And Paul gave us this command from Christ in verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. One scholar says this, as we're confronted with a blast that we may or may not push back against, especially when we hear the term always, we like the idea of rejoicing. But one scholar says this, he says, few things about the New Testament are more remarkable than, his, than the continual stress on joy. 70 times throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to rejoice, to be joyful, to experience the joy of the Lord. And, and certainly we know that it is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So we've got to bring those together. What does it mean to obey the command, to be joyful, and to allow the Holy Spirit to uh, produce that in us? And I think the short answer is, is we just choose to live in a loving response of obedience to Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit's constantly producing that sense of joy within us, that character, that virtue of joy. Well, the command uh, to be joyful was a wake-up call for those first century Thessalonians, the people living in Thessalonica who were followers of Jesus Christ because they were facing persecution. They had seen what had happened to Paul he had been beaten in the previous couple of cities. He had been forced to leave Thessalonica. After only three weeks 
in the synagogue. We don't know if he might have been there just a little bit longer. Probably taught three times a week, but it was a short stay. And the first century believers had very little to celebrate when we think about that, when we think about being joyful. They were persecuted and pursued on several levels. Yet Paul had already commented on their joyfulness. He says this in chapter 1, verse 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes the things that they went through, the persecution, the difficulties, the hardships, by placing their faith in Jesus Christ and stepping outside of their culture. To follow Christ. He recognizes in verse 5 the power and conviction that came with that. So that they were able to imitate Paul and Silas. What did Paul and Silas do when they were in prison just a couple of cities before in Philippi? They praised God. They praised God and God acted with an earthquake. Jailer became a follower of Jesus Christ and they were sent along on their way. The Thessalonians, Thessalonians had become Imitators of Paul and Silas. They were Paul imitators of Jesus. What did he do? Well, he endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Paul had, had acknowledged that, and now he commanded it. Paul's refrain in ministry throughout his life was, we are sorrowful, yet rejoicing. The book of 2 Corinthians gives us several illustrations, several uh, autobiographical moments in Paul's life uh, of the hardships and difficulties that he went through. Uh, the shipwrecks, the beatings, being stoned, the abuse, the persecution, the, the difficulty of getting people to listen to the gospel and people who have accepted Christ to follow him and the burden it brought to his heart. He faced a great deal of difficulty and hardship. I, I think that we can line up our difficulties and hardships and lay them against his and see that there are many parallels, certainly in intensity and sorrow and pain. And yet his refrain was sorrowful yet rejoicing. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 10, he spoke of rejoicing. Well, how is that possible for the follower of Jesus Christ? Because life is difficult in a fallen world. Life is hard. Life can be painful. Life can be tragic. Life can just plain be difficult. Well, the follower of Jesus Christ places his focus on Jesus Christ. That is where we find our joy. And so if you just think of the time of Advent, as we look back, we focus on Christ and what he has done for us. He came to redeem us from our sins. And we look forward to that second Advent. And we think of the living God of the universe, the one who created and sustains it, Jesus Christ, returning for us. And we look forward to him coming. And we are filled with joy. That alone can focus us on Christ, thinking of the Advents. But when we focus on Jesus, when our faith is engaged and we are trusting him, we are dependent upon him, 
we are looking to him for his promises and his plans and his purposes, that everything might be fulfilled his way in our lives. And that allows us to experience his joy. We find our joy in Jesus. I want you to look at Psalm 1611 with us. This is what David wrote, the second part of the verse. And it is in a passage that is also used as prophetic of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this is what David wrote. He said, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Certainly that applies to the follower of Christ who dies and goes to be with Jesus immediately and will be with him for all eternity. But it also applies to us on a daily basis. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's incredible. In the presence of the Lord, we can know a joy that is unknown in this world and allows us to right, rise above the circumstances. And you might reply, but I don't always feel joyful. Why not? Well, I can answer that because I'm often focused more on my circumstances than I am on Jesus. I'm often focused more on getting a hold of what's going on in my life and trying to wrestle my way through it than looking to Jesus and seeing what he might be doing here, depending upon him, leaning on him, recognizing him as my Lord, the Lord of the universe, who is fully sovereign and fully and completely in control. And then expressing his joy. So let me start over. Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. I don't always feel joyful. What's the problem here? Well, Jesus is always present with me, right? And I am always in a location. And the location that I am in, Jesus is always with me. Jesus is present. But I think here's the issue. I am not always present with Jesus. I'm in this location and he is present with me. He is focused and he is engaged with me and he is offering his grace, but I am not always engaged with him. I am not always focused on him. I am not always rejoicing in the eternal because I'm mired in the earthly, the circumstances of my life. We've got to get to a place where we are finding joy in Jesus. We need to focus our faith on Jesus. His, he is eternal and our circumstances are not. Think with me of a couple well-known passages in the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Then he repeats himself. Again, I say, rejoice. He's very clear there that we are to obey this command, but even better, he's very clear on where that joy comes from, in the Lord. Our focus on him, the Lord who has redeemed us from our sins, the Lord who is with us, the Lord who sustains us by his grace in every way that we need it. Psalm 118, 24 says, this is the day which the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day which the Lord has made. I will rejoice in the Lord and be glad today. We can experience joy 
as we focus on the Lord. We can express, express the joy that the Holy Spirit is producing in us as we express our faith in Jesus Christ, as we simply lean on him and trust him and focus on him. Nehemiah said it well, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We don't all exhibit joy all the time, but we have the Holy Spirit producing joy within us. And too often we give our focus to everything around us and we become restless, disoriented, dissatisfied. We lack contentment instead of the joy that the Lord produces. And I think that joy produced by the Holy Spirit remains latent within us when it's not expressed. When we focus on Jesus, we experience the goodness of God. When we focus on Jesus, we get to know and understand the character of Jesus. When we focus on Jesus, we get to know and understand his activity in us, starting with our salvation and the forgiveness of sin, the fact that we don't experience the guilt and shame that we had before Jesus forgave us. When we focus on Jesus, we experience his activity through us. As we see him change our minds and our hearts, and we are able to offer words of encouragement and kindness, and we are able to act in a loving manner toward others because he is transforming us and changing us from the inside out. When we focus on Jesus, we are drawn to the eternal. And we experience joy above our circumstances. Joy cannot be manufactured. It comes from our focus and faith on Jesus Christ. Many of us have commiserated together over the years about how our focus on Jesus and the joy that we receive from that is sharpened in suffering. Suffering and trials and difficulties have a way of just squeezing the life of us, out of us, of just drying us out and, and leaving us almost helpless and, and paralyzed in spirit. And there are those times when we focus on Jesus that we have experienced the sweetest communion with him. When his joy begins to flood our hearts and, and we are in awe because we know how painful and intense things are in life, and yet he is with us, and he is powerful through the joy that he gives us. We fight our circumstances in the flesh. We find relief and joy through Jesus Christ. That joy is available 24-7. You might even call it a defiant joy in light of circumstances in life. We can experience his joy now. And perhaps it would help if we just heed the line from the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. Perhaps if we were more disciplined in focusing on Christ, perhaps if we were more disciplined in what we call devotions or quiet time or, or just a set time of focusing on Jesus Christ, a few minutes to start the day, a few minutes to end the day, throughout the day, to experience his joy and to focus on him and to ask for that joy. Now, Paul's not speaking about a constant euphoria. So now we deal with the word always. To rejoice always means that we just establish this trajectory in life where we are going to discipline ourselves to be in communion with Christ, 
where we're going to look to him and lean on him and tell him our needs and depend upon him and ask him to work and anticipate his goodness throughout. So spiritual disciplines that allow us to access his grace in full measure. We look to him. Well, God's word has commanded us to be joyful, rejoice always. In the next command, we're given another command that actually helps us stay focused on Christ. And that is be prayerful, be prayerful. Stay constantly in prayer. So once more, we're going to have an adverb calling for a constant attitude and action. Paul does it in all three of these commands. He, he, develop, he, he deals with us in the sense of this is what you always need to be doing. In everything you do, do this. It comes out in each one. And, and actually, in the original language, the, the first century individual would have read this and said, well, that's emphatic. The way he's worded this, he's put the always and the constantly and the, in everything give thanks. He, he's put all of that up front so that we must emphasize doing this our entire lives is to become a habit it's become a discipline it's to become who we are as we live out our faith in jesus christ the lord wants us to develop specific lifestyle and attitudes and actions and so here paul says pray without ceasing chapter 5 verse 17 pray without ceasing prayer is a word that describes us talking to god we converse with the living God of the universe. And the term used here by Paul, you know there are many terms for prayer throughout Scripture. This is the most general of all. This would apply to virtually any type of prayer. Confession, praise, thanksgiving, petition, every kind of prayer is found here. And like every heartfelt prayer, it is a prayer that has a bent toward worship, that is engaged with Jesus Christ, that is looking to him. It is not taking for granted that just because he is present and I am praying that I am engaged with him. We look to Jesus and we pray without ceasing. Prayer is a powerful and potent tool for the follower of Jesus. Prayer is how we access God for grace and mercy to help in time of need. We have several examples throughout scripture. I'm sure you can think of some. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. God said in Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and give you great and mighty things that you do not know. In Psalm 32 and in Isaiah 55, we are told to seek the Lord while he may be found. In Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit at all times. James 5, pray for each other. Throughout Scripture, we are instructed by God to be people of prayer. We are to converse with God. We are to commune with Him. Samuel Chadwick points out the power of prayer and the priority we need to make it with this quote. He says, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. 
I like that. Prayer is vitally important to the life of the believer. And God's word has made it clear that prayer is a form of obedience. We're commanded to do something that is intentionally focus on Jesus and commune with him in prayer. And isn't it amazing? I mean, here we are commanded this. This is a form of obedience. We usually kind of eh, pull back at, at, at commands and think thoughts of obedience. But this is all for us. This is all so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace for grace and mercy to help in time of need. That is phenomenal. Incredible exhortation. Think of people in the Bible who learned to lean on God through prayer, who, used to, who, who learned to go to God in prayer. Moses went to God in prayer for provision at the Red Sea, and the Lord answered. He went to the Lord for provision in the wilderness, and the Lord sent manna. Nehemiah went to the Lord for wisdom as he was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and the Lord provided and helped him complete that task. Daniel went to the Lord for protection, and the Lord protected him. Jesus went to the Lord in times of temptation. When you look in the Gospel of Mark, there are only three recorded instances where Christ went to prayer. But each time was a time of tremendous temptation to veer away from God's agenda into his own agenda. And each time he went to prayer and was aligned with God's will. Paul went to prayer. One of the great things about reading his letters are he'll just stop in the middle of a, a letter. He's writing and he said, here's how I pray for you. I pray for you right now. This is what I'm praying for. And he constantly requested prayer for his ministry, for God to open doors, for the gospel to be clear, for hearts to be changed. We see prayer modeled throughout the people of Scripture. You might find one that is meaningful to you and latch on to that individual and trust them. We must consider prayer an attitude of dependence upon the Lord. That's what these individuals did. Hebrews 4.16, it gives us a, a great, great incentive to go to the Lord in prayer. I quoted it earlier. It's on the screen. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, boldness to the throne of grace. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> so that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. It's an incredible, incredible incentive to go to the Lord in prayer. And it gives us that attitude of dependence. Who does not want grace and mercy? in their lives. And who among us doesn't want it in the time of need? We all have needs. Right now we have needs. And we can go right to Jesus Christ for that. Praying without ceasing means that we are beginning to pray repeatedly and often. And that without ceasing often causes us to stumble because we just can't get our mind wrapped around it. Our, our prayers are not to be constantly occurring, but constantly recurring. Jesus provided a model of constant conversation with the Lord throughout the Gospel of John, especially. 
he mentions more than once that I do what the Father tells me to do. I say what the Father tells me to say. I and the Father are one. He's giving us this model of being in constant communion with the Father, constant conversation. And that is something that is open to every one of us. It may not feel comfortable at first. You may think, well, I got, a, I got this overcommitted schedule. There's no way I can add this to my life. But really, it's just a way of going through your overcommitted schedule, acknowledging that Jesus is with you and talking to him about it. You and I can practice such a prayer life. You can pray at the start of your day. You can pray for the meetings you're going to have. You can pray for decisions you've got to make. Certainly pray for your illnesses and the car to be fixed. Pray for relationships. Pray for the opportunity to share the gospel that day. Those are ways to start thinking about the day and then even during the day. You might try this once a day. Choose a meeting or a conversation with a friend or something like that and just start praying during the meeting. I think that if you start praying while you're with a friend, Lord, how can I encourage this person? How can I answer them? What wisdom can I share? You'll find yourself ending up praying with them as much as you pray for them. You meet someone who is hurting or struggling or without Christ and you ask the Lord, how can I meet these needs? Give me an opportunity to share the gospel, change their hearts. There are all kinds of ways that we can pray throughout the day. It doesn't have to be kneeling in your closet. It doesn't have to be a checklist. I took care of that this morning. No, what the Lord is calling us to here is a conversational prayer throughout the day that allows us to stay in touch with the Lord, Lord and acknowledge our dependence upon him. We can practice that type of prayer life. And here's what's happening when we do this. We're depending upon the Lord for grace and mercy to help in all of those situations in our lives. We're actually saying, Lord, I'm insufficient, which is a form of humility to carry out my will and your will. I turn to you. We want to be a people that practice it. The word unceasing, maybe this word picture will help you, was used in the first century for a hacking cough. A hacking cough. Doesn't always mean somebody's coughing constantly, but it means that the tendency is always there. That tickle in the throat is there, and it erupts occasionally. And that's what Paul is pointing us to here, that the attitude of our heart and the lifestyle of our day is such that we are pointed toward Jesus, that we are thinking about Jesus, that we are willing to talk to him. And sometimes those prayers become audible, and sometimes they just break out in praise or confession or petition for someone else. That is what Paul is calling us to, or God, through Paul's writings here. We can anticipate the goodness of God through prayer. Prayer actually helps build excitement when it comes to anticipating God's goodness because prayer forces us to slow down and it gets our thoughts off of ourselves and it puts our thoughts on the Lord himself. We stop thinking about how impossible everything is for us and how possible everything is for God when we turn to the Lord in prayer. It is Paul who proclaimed to the Lord that he gives us more or beyond all that we ask or imagine. That's how God lavishes his grace upon us. He welcomes prayer. He invites us to come to him for grace and mercy. We must be people of prayer. 
The, say, uh, the third command found in verse 18 is be thankful. Be thankful. One of the great marks of the Holy Spirit at work in a believer's life is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Polite thank yous are evidence of good manners. But thankfulness is evidence of an awareness of God's activity in my life and in your life and through us. Thankfulness is an attitude that we carry throughout the day. When you, were, when you trusted Jesus, when I trusted Jesus, we were made new creatures in Christ. And I'm convinced that one of the longings he placed in our hearts is to be thankful. I believe thankfulness is the prevailing attitude of the Christian life. It, it is peppered throughout scripture. It is difficult to find passages without some form of humility expressed in thankfulness. But regardless of what I think, God's word leaves us no wiggle room. Just like with joy and with prayer, we're commanded to give thanks. This is what he says. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Thankfulness draws us to worship our Lord. It puts our focus on him. And I think it's noteworthy that Paul says here, in everything instead of for everything doesn't want to confuse us and make us think through all kinds of theology and all of that on suffering and, and thankfulness. He just says, hey, in everything, give thanks. And what he's doing is he's challenging our theology. He's showing us how deeply rooted Paul believes what he believes. Because when we trust Christ in everything, we can give thanks for everything. How is it possible? for us to give thanks in difficult situations? Well, we can believe what God's word says. It's a verse that we're very familiar with. It captures all of scripture in the heart of God for us. Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those that love God. Serve according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Do we really believe that? Or not, Because if we don't believe it, then we can go back to our circumstances and we become embittered, we can become restless, uh, lack of content and everything else. But if we really believe that God is above all of this and he is working everything toward good for those who love him, then we can rise above the circumstances. We can be thankful that he is still in control even when we can't see our way out of what is going on. And it helps us to look at the following passage. Verse 29, after Romans 8, 28. The purpose, we're told, that he's working all things together for good, and the good that he is working is that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we might become more like Jesus. And deep down, that's the intent of all of us. That's the longing desire of our heart is to become more like Jesus. That's the trajectory that he set us on. That's the promise he made. The good work I begin in you, I will complete in you. So we've got to trust God. In the midst of our difficulty, we can be thankful that he knows what he's doing. We can be thankful that he is shaping our soul to become more like Jesus Christ. We can anticipate his goodness in the midst of it. I often talk to people, friends, those in counseling, different situations about rediscovering God in your current situation. 
We all have our image of God, and it was J.B. Phillips back in the 50s who wrote the book, Your God is Too Small. When he identified how we think we know who God is, and we put him in a box. And he's not infinite, and he's not big enough to change our thinking, and, and he's not big enough to handle our lives and our world. And so I often ask people, are you willing to rediscover God in this situation? To learn him and his attributes and his characteristics in the trial you're going through. Not just what you think you know about him, but in his current activity in your life right now. I think that's one way that helps us to be thankful in all situations. We've got to believe that God is working all together for good. And I've found that thankfulness gives a boost to anticipating God's goodness. Thankfulness opens the door to see our circumstances in a different light. What, God, what, what could God do? What might God do? I no longer lock him in to my terrible outcomes because I have no idea, again, how God is shaping my soul. Not only that God is capable of doing more than we ask or think, not only is God shaping us, but he is capable of doing more than we ask or think. Life is full of plot twists and turns. And when you consider God's infinite character, that he is for you and advocating for you and his incredible power to do as he pleases, his incredible love for you, it puts a smile on your face. It opens the door to realizing that God is in control. And your attitude will change from what's wrong with my world to what's right with what God's doing. Thankfulness is interrelated with joyfulness and prayerfulness. Each one draws us nearer to Jesus Christ. Each one changes our attitude about life in this world. And each is commanded by Jesus. When the gospel takes root... We can anticipate God's goodness. Notice how Paul closes out these three commands at the end. I believe they apply to all three, not just verse 18. This is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you. The will of God is not to make some dramatic display of power or gifting, but simply to be seen in our daily experience, our daily lives as we walk with Jesus that quiet response that we make to him in the middle of our circumstances. Here's the will of God for your spirit, for your inner life, which is expressed outwardly in continual worship of our Lord. Be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. When we put these together, Advent or any time of year is a most wonderful time of year. Christmas can be hectic, it can be frustrating, and it can be wildly fulfilling. But the season itself does nothing for us compared to the person of Jesus Christ. So let's turn our lives toward these disciplines and obey these commands of Christ. Be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great joy that you bring to us we thank you that there is great joy in your presence and that we merely need to trust you, lean on you, depend on you, not take you for granted and not feel entitled about what we deserve, but to trust you completely. And we pray, Lord, 
that in our brokenness, that you would give us strength and the grace to turn to you. That you would not only give us this desire, but allow these disciplines to begin to play out in our lives. That you would be honored and glorified. And that we would experience all that you have for us in life. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We'll stand together.
shepherds came to see the baby stood by his mother's side. He laid the Savior inside a manger. Oh, what a glorious night. Oh, what a glorious night. I hear the angels sing. Oh, what a 